Hi everyone, my name's Lynn. Um, we're continuing on our journey through Zechariah tonight and the reading is from chapter 11, verses 4 to 14. Please follow along with me. This is what the Lord my God says. Shepherd the flock marked for slaughter. Their buyers slaughter them and go unpunished. Those who sell them say, Praise the Lord, I am rich. Their, sh their own shepherds do not spare them, for I will no longer have pity on the people of the land, declares the Lord. I will give everyone into the hands of their neighbours and their king. They will devastate the land, and I will not rescue anyone from their hands. So I shepherded the flock marked for slaughter, particularly the oppressed of the flock. Then I took two staffs and called one favour and the other union, and I shepherded the flock. In one month, I got rid of the three shepherds. The flock detested me, and I grew weary of them, and, and said, I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die, and the perishing perish. Let those who are left eat one, another, eat one another's flesh. Then I took my staff called favour and broke it, revoking the covenant I had made with all the nations. It was revoked on that day, and so the oppressed of the flock who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. Then I broke my second staff called Union, breaking the family bond between Judah and Israel. Good evening, folks. How you doing? It's good to be, good to be with you. Uh, Zechariah, boy, um, if you've been studying this passage earlier in this week, uh, in your home groups, as we many of us have been doing, uh, you'll know that we're in for a bit of a wild ride tonight. So uh, we're going to need God's help. I'm going to pray for us. I'd love it if you'd join me and ask that God would uh, bless this time as we read his word. Let's pray. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for all your mercies to us, mercies undeserved. Uh, we thank you ultimately for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the grace that you give us every moment of every day. Uh, and right now, Father, we ask that you would give us grace. Help us to understand what you're saying to us through this part of your Bible. Um, help us to make sense of some of this really complicated imagery. Uh, and help us to see your son, the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd, as the one that this text ultimately points to. We pray that our love for him and our desire to follow him would grow as a result of what we read tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I reckon that our world is haunted by the, the spectre, by the idea of good, noble leaders. You can turn to any work of fiction, basically, and find somewhere, at least one character, I reckon, in every work of fiction, of a, a kind of a leader that you would love to follow, somebody who embodies some characteristic of, of what we intrinsically know good leaders are supposed to be about. 
And so perhaps you, you might think, what does a good leader look like? Well, maybe it's somebody who has the courage to stick to their convictions without compromising on them. Somebody like President Bartlett from the West Wing, perhaps, who'd be a good leader. Or perhaps as you think about what a good leader looks like, you imagine the, the fatherly tenderness uh, t- to have compassion on the people that you're leading. Someone like Coach Taylor from Friday Night Lights. Boy, wouldn't you want him as your coach? Or, or maybe a good leader in your mind is somebody w- with strength and wisdom who always knows the right answer and how to solve problems. Someone like Gandalf. I don't know. Maybe those are the kinds of traits of good leaders that, that you imagine. We long for good leaders. We're haunted by the prospect of them. But all too often in this world, we face the reality of leaders who fall far short of those ideals that we have, don't we? So whether it's the greedy executive who cares more about their growing profit margin than about the people he has to exploit to get there, or whether it's the hypocritical politician who is revealed to have been having an extramarital affair the whole time, or whether it's the overbearing coach whose identity is so wrapped up in their own success that they are unable to demonstrate mercy and grace and kindness to the people that they teach. Sadly, I reckon the reality of the leaders that we have often falls far short of the leaders that we want. And I say that as a leader, recognizing that I'm implicating myself in that reality. Now, this this theme of leadership, as Ken has mentioned, it's, it's come up actually a bunch of times in the book of Zechariah already. Uh, you might remember that in the first half of the book, we met two leaders. We met Joshua, who was the high priest, and we met Zerubbabel, who was the governor of Israel at the time. They were flawed leaders. They weren't perfect, but they were pretty decent guys sort of on the whole. And we saw how those, those two men ultimately pointed forward to the great priest king, the branch, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to come. And now as we find ourselves in the second half of the book of Zechariah, uh, what we're finding is that this second half of the book seems to take place many, many years later than the first half was written. Because the leadership of Israel that we read about in these chapters is truly awful. Uh, Israel's leaders seem to have kind of regressed back into idolatry and injustice and oppressing the flock they were supposed to be leading. And and this passage that we're looking at today, it speaks directly into that situation, warning the people of Israel about the kind of leaders that they choose to follow and warning the leaders of Israel that it really matters how they choose to lead. So I think today's passage is going to have a lot to say to people like me people who are leaders within God's church, people like elders and deacons and home group leaders and ministry team leaders and kids' church volunteers, whoever it might be, you share some position of leadership in the church, this passage is going to have a lot to say to you. But let's remember, it doesn't just speak to leaders. Passages like this are given to the whole church. It is for the benefit of all of us, whether we're in leadership or not, because even if you're not in leadership, you will learn from this passage tonight the kind of leader that, A, you ought to aspire to be, and be the kind of leader you ought to follow. And if nothing else, I hope that tonight we are going to see our great leader, the Lord Jesus, and how unmatched and how glorious he is as a leader over us. Now, Ken mentioned earlier, I've been tasked tonight with trying to cover chapters 9 to 11, which is a long and complicated part of Zechariah. Uh, And so before we dive in, let me just explain something to you. 
um, the way that these chapters, these three chapters are written, it's not a chronological narrative, okay? It's not telling you what happened from A to B to C to D. Uh, what's going on in these chapters is there's a lot of jumping back and forth between two big ideas. On the one hand, you get all of these warnings to these bad shepherds of Israel, and on the other hand, you get all these promises about the arrival of a good shepherd who is to come, and it just keeps jumping back and forth between these two. And so that's actually what I'm going to be doing tonight as well as we get into these chapters. I'm going to be jumping in and out of different passages. Uh, I'm not going to have the time to explain every verse here. And so if there's something that you want to know about these chapters that I don't cover, please send a question into the podcast. We release it every week. I'd be happy to try and answer that question for you later. So what is it that Zechariah wants to show us about leadership in these chapters? I think the first thing is that he wants to persuade us that bad shepherds bring ruin. Bad shepherds bring ruin. And we're going to start by jumping into chapter 10. So if you've got a Bible, it would be really helpful if you keep it open on your laps because we're flicking around so much. Incidentally, if you don't have a physical Bible, the church would love to give you one. We have Bibles to give away as gifts. Come speak to me afterwards and I'll give one to you then. Chapter 10 uh, from verse 1. It starts by zooming in and showing us God's rule of all creation. Let's read verse 1. Ask the Lord for rain in the springtime. It is the Lord who sends the thunderstorms. He gives showers of rain to all people and plants of the field to everyone. You see, God is the one who rules over his creation. God's the only one who's worthy of worship. However, it seems like God's people were not acknowledging God as the creator. Uh, So keep reading. Verse 2, the idols speak deceitfully. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep oppressed for lack of a shepherd. Uh, The purpose of Israel's leaders, in fact, all throughout the Bible, was that they were supposed to direct people to worship the Lord, to, to love him and live for him. But instead, whether it's through kind of active encouragement or simply by abdicating their responsibility, God's people have been led to worship idols, false gods, who in turn offer false comforts and false securities. These idols, of course, they have no power. They're man-made. Worshipping them is pointless. And so the people here in this predicament, they are pictured, described as sheep without a shepherd, which is, if you know anything about sheep, that's a bad thing for a sheep to be, sheep without a shepherd. Because if you think about it, sheep don't really have a lot going for them in the way of survival mechanisms, do they? Uh, they, they, they don't have any speed. They don't have any camouflage. They don't have any, you know, sharp limbs with which to attack. No real sturdy defenses as a sheep. Uh, you know, I, they have a, a bleat, which I, th- I think is probably about the least intimidating sound in the entire animal kingdom. And so for a predator, when they see a sheep without a shepherd, you know what they think? Lunch. That's what it is. A ready meal. We just pick it up and take it away. It's that easy to kill a sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd are vulnerable. And you know what else they are? They are incredibly stupid. Sheep are stupid animals. There was a story back in 2005 from Turkey. Uh, There was a story about some shepherds who had a large flock, 1,500 sheep. And uh, the shepherds went to get some breakfast one morning uh, whilst they left their sheep kind of grazing up on a hillside at the top of a canyon. And for some reason, one of the sheep in that large flock decided to wander too close to the edge and fell off the cliff, plummeting to its death. And the shepherds, as they sat there eating their breakfast, could only watch in horror from afar as every other sheep in that flock followed that first sheep, falling off the cliff. All 1,500 of them plummeted down into the ravine. 
Uh, the good news is that only the first 500 of them died because the, the other 1,000 had something soft to land on when they got to the bottom. But sheep are, are vulnerable. This is a true story, by the way. Sheep are vulnerable and they are stupid. And so do, just, just do realize that when the Bible describes people like sheep without a shepherd, that is what it's saying, that, that, that we are vulnerable and stupid. That's the Bible's testimony about you and I. I'm sorry to tell you. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, prophet Isaiah says. That's what we're like if we are left to our own devices without a shepherd. And Jesus himself, he picks up on this kind of description of sheep in Matthew chapter 9 when he's looking out at the crowds and he assesses them as uh, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. You see, the truth is, friends, that unless we have someone in our life who is constantly calling us to repentance and faith, unless we have a good shepherd leading us, then we will run blindly off spiritual cliffs. We will run after whatever idols it is that our culture puts in front of us. And now, remember that idols, idols are not just kind of religious statues that people bow down to. Idols are anything that you think will care for you in the place of God, anything you elevate as to ultimate importance. And without a good shepherd, we will worship idols. We will conclude that our jobs and our bank accounts and our relationships are the things that can satisfy and protect us. And we will fail to see those things for the lies that they are. Israel's shepherds at this point have completely failed. They've failed to protect the flock from the suicide of idolatry, and God is angry with them. Not just for abdicating their responsibilities, worse than that actually, for abusing their power as well. Let's keep reading from verse 3. God says, My anger burns against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord Almighty will care for his flock, the people of Judah, and make them like a proud horse in battle. Uh, that word that's used there in verse 3 for leaders, the leaders of God, of uh, Israel, uh, the word is literally uh, male goats. And it's, a, it's an image that's taken from the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 34, which is describing the leaders of Judah at, at the time of the exile. And the leaders of Judah are like butting around and bashing up the flock. You see, the point is that unlike the Lord God, they don't really care for the flock. Instead, they're simply using the flock, exploiting the flock for their own personal purposes, whatever that might be, be it money or ego or sexual gratification. You probably know as well as I do the string of scandals that there have been in recent years in denominations like ours in the evangelical world a string of high-profile church leaders who have been found out to have been abusing their power for those exact reasons. People like Ravi Zacharias and Steve Timmis and Brian Houston, to name but a few. And that's not to mention the countless other pastors and leaders who have no celebrity who've fallen into that same disgrace. Often it's these people who we would think are you know, theologically orthodox, and then behind the scenes, it turns out that they have been abusive and exploitative in their leadership of the flock. 
And as you look at all those kind of cases, you may have noticed this as well, that there, there, there is a pattern to them. There is something predictable about that happening. Because often you see these leaders, they lead through sheer force of personality instead of Christ-like service and gentleness. Uh, they begin, I think, to think of the church as theirs instead of Jesus's. And so all of those people who disagree with them, they get pushed out. And gradually over time, they get surrounded by yes-men so that they can avoid those genuine structures of accountability. And in that kind of a church culture, abuse thrives. It is true that sometimes people become lost sheep. People run off that spiritual cliff edge because of an absence of leadership. That does happen. But equally, sometimes it's because of an abusive leadership. I think it's not unreasonable when this happens, when people have endured bad shepherds, those kind of bullying goats, and they find it so unbearable that they think, well, life would be better without the church. And I want to say that's you tonight. If you are someone who has been hurt by abusive leaders, then please do know that the Lord is on your side in this. Verse 3 is very clear, isn't it? The Lord burns with anger against abusive shepherds. He holds them to account. They are not going to get away with this. We're going to jump forward to chapter 11 because chapter 11 continues picking up on this theme of God's judgment of the wicked shepherds. Chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. Let me read. Open your doors, Lebanon, so that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, you juniper, for the cedar has fallen, the stately trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, the dense forest has been cut down. Listen to the wail of the shepherds, their rich pastures are destroyed. Listen to the roar of the lions, their lush thicket of the Jordan is ruined. And we're shown here in, in these verses three proud, powerful kind of trees. And one by one, these enormous stately trees are devoured, cut down, and destroyed. And the point is, so it will be with the proud, powerful, false shepherds in Judah. For those lions who devour the flock, one day it will be they who are devoured, cut down, ruined. They will wail as the Lord meets out his punishment upon them. And we will listen, knowing that justice has been done. Now, this all might sound and feel a little bit extreme for us to be talking about tonight, because, I mean, after all, there's no problems like that here at WBC. But I don't think we should be so naive as to think that this could never happen at our church. If you know me, you know that I'm a sinner. I'm flawed. I have weaknesses. I have blind spots. The same is true for all of the elders and leaders here at WBC. Now, the Bible does tell us that, yes, you should honour and submit and respect your leaders, but leaders must never be above correction and accountability. And please do know that the Bible never calls you to blindly submit to your leaders in everything. It never calls you to do that. And so I, just, I want to take the opportunity tonight... <laughs> to make sure that you know that there are things in place here at WBC, a number of accountability measures to try to prevent that worst-case scenario from happening, the abuse of the sheep. 
Uh, you might know, for instance, that we have a plurality of elders here at WBC who share the, the pastoral responsibility for each of you. Currently, there are seven of us on the eldership. And we want that group to grow because we think it provides better accountability, better oversight of you and care for you as the sheep. So would you please pray that God would raise up more godly elders to join us? You may also know that all of the staff, all of us who are employed here as elders, pastors, leaders, we receive regular reviews of our conduct and our character. And, you know, being on the receiving end of those things, many of you have been involved in giving feedback. Those things are usually painful, but always helpful and right for us to receive that kind of feedback. You might also know that we have a detailed safe church policy that we've worked through for many years, something that protects the vulnerable in our congregation. We have a clear code of conduct, several policies for conflict resolution and the handling of complaints against volunteers and staff. We have a safe church team that administer all of that with transparency and sensitivity and confidentiality. And of course, I hope you know that being a congregational church we as leaders are ultimately answerable to you, our members. You help keep us accountable as leaders. All of these things are in place. And so can I ask you tonight, please, to pray for us? Pray for your leaders, that we would be people of integrity, that we would have a Christ-like character, that we might be protected from such grievous sin as this. We take accountability here very seriously because we know that bad shepherds bring ruin. Now, that's all very serious and heavy. I understand that. This passage, as I said before, there's a flip side to it. This passage does bring us exceedingly good news, and here it is. The good news is that there is a good shepherd coming, and this good shepherd will bring redemption. That's the other part that this, these chapters want to show us. The good shepherd brings redemption. So let's jump back to chapter 10, and we'll pick it up from, uh, from verse 4. Let me read for you from verse 4. From Judah will come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler. Together they will be like warriors in battle, trampling their enemy into the mud of the streets. They will fight because the Lord is with them and they will put the enemy horsemen to shame. God's solution to bad shepherds is to provide a good shepherd. Now, once again, this is one of those promises in this book about that divine king who is to come and who is going to lead God's people. He's going to come out of the tribe of Judah. So this is the same king we read about earlier in chapter 3, that priest king. Uh, this is the same leader we read about in chapter 6 that's described as the branch who is coming. This is the same leader back in chapter 9, the passage we skipped over, that describes this king coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. This king promised here is, of course, none other than the Lord Jesus. And verse 4, I think it gives you four illustrations, four pictures of what this king, what Jesus would do for his people. It tells us that he will be the cornerstone. That is, he is the one who we base our lives on. Uh, he is the one on whom we build. He gives orientation and direction to our life. It tells us he is the tent peg. That is, he's the one who will hold us firmly in place, the one in whom our lives are secure and safe for eternity. He is the battle bow. He will equip us to, to fight against every enemy and foe that seeks to do us harm. And he is the source of every ruler. He is the one who shares his power and authority, who raises up under shepherds to lead his people. You see, this king that is to come, this good shepherd, is utterly unlike the bad shepherds who devour the flock. 
And verse 6 there, if you skip down, verse 6 tells us that this shepherd is coming because of God's compassion on his people, God's compassion. God feels for his people who are lost and helpless. Earlier in the book, it was described as God being jealous for his people. He wants them back to be his, to take care of them. And so he sends his shepherd. In verse 8, you see, this shepherd, he is going to signal for his flock. Literally, uh, the word there in verse 8 is that he will whistle for them, as a shepherd does. And he's going to whistle for, for all of Israel's tribes, the northern and the southern, Ephraim and Judah, as they're scattered across the earth. They're described in these verses as kind of languishing in places of slavery, places like Egypt and Assyria. God is moved with compassion as he sees them there. He whistles for them, calls them to come back to his fold, regathers them to himself so that he can strengthen them and care for them and feed them and protect them again. It's a description of that picture from Psalm 23 that we read earlier. And as you read this, you might think, that sounds great, (laughs) but where is it? (laughs) I mean, if you read through the rest of the Old Testament history from this point on, it never happens. Israel are never regathered. Judah and Ephraim are never reunited in God's loving care. This was not fulfilled in the Old Testament. I hope you know, friends, that when the Lord Jesus came onto the scene some 500 years later, This is exactly what we see him doing in glorious technicolor. You see, driven by compassion, Jesus made it his mission to seek and save the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor on all of those who had wandered off. He came to preach the good news, not just to Judeans in the south, but to Samaritans and Galileans in the north, and yes, even to Gentiles like you and me. Jesus came to invite us to be regathered into God's flock. We've heard it already today. John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is the shepherd who brought redemption rescuing us wayward sheep from slavery to sin and idols, rescuing us by dying in our place, laying down his life. Friends, Jesus is that good leader that we all deeply long for. So you see, God responds to bad shepherds with justice. God responds to wandering sheep like us with untold mercy and compassion. Uh, In his book, Gentle and Lowly, which I've quoted from earlier in uh, this Zechariah series, Dane Altland comments on Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, which says that God is rich in mercy. And this is what he writes. He says, Nowhere else in the Bible is God described as rich in anything. The only thing he is called rich in is mercy. What does this mean? It means that God is something other than what we naturally believe him to be. It means the Christian life is a lifelong shedding of tepid thoughts of the goodness of God. In his justice, God is exacting. In his mercy, God is overflowing. The good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, came to bring you Redemption by laying down his life. So, friends, let's have no more tepid thoughts of the goodness of God. 
I think the question that we are left with then, seeing these, these two leaders before us, is, well, which one will we follow? Uh, that's the question that Zechariah wants to press his listeners to answer. And that's the question that I think that that section in chapter 11 that Lynn read out for us before, I think that's what it's trying to get us to consider. So as we turn to chapter 11, what we're going to have to force ourselves to reckon with is that we need to choose which shepherd we will follow. Maybe as you read those verses in, in chapter 11, studied them this week in your home group, uh, they were a bit confusing. They are a bit confusing. There's a lot going on in these verses. And so let me just quickly clarify what I think this is all about in kind of summary form. I think that that, that picture there in verse, uh, from verse 4 on to 14 is a vision which dramatizes the whole history of Israel and Judah's sin, kind of condensed down into one tight narrative. And it's that history that culminates in their exile, which they've just experienced. All the stuff that's in these verses about uh, the shepherd taking two staffs, favor and union, making a covenant with his people, uh, I think that's and then breaking those staffs, it's describing, I think, what God has already done in Israel by withdrawing his blessings from his people, by handing them over to their enemies in exile. In other words, what I'm saying is that I think these verses, instead of pointing forwards and looking to be fulfilled, I think this vision points backwards as an explanation of Israel's history. God is presenting that history that they would have all known, but doing it in a really unfamiliar and dramatic way because he wants something in that retelling of their history to capture their attention. I think what he wants them to see is in verses 12 and 13, where God is essentially saying to them that the reason they ended up in exile is because they chose to walk away from the good shepherd. Let's read those verses again, chapter 11, verse 12 and 13. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. Uh, what's going on here is, is, is these verses are describing a transaction that has taken place uh, where the people of Israel basically pay off Zechariah in order to get rid of him as their shepherd, to get him off their backs, to stop him from speaking in the name of the Lord. Zechariah says, if you don't want me anymore, that's fine. Just give me my money and I will go. And that's exactly what they do. They pay him to clear off, to try to get rid of him and the God that he speaks for. And you may think, well, that is a crazy thing for people to do. The good shepherd is calling them to, to come into his pasture, his protection, his provision, and they want to silence him? That's nuts. Who would do such a thing? I would never do such a thing. Of course, you know that the ultimate instance of getting rid of the shepherd in order to get rid of the God who he speaks for was when Judas betrayed Jesus and received this exact sum of money as payment. 30 shekels of silver, as the Gospels tell us, like in Matthew 27, which quotes this passage in Zechariah to show how it was fulfilled. Judas made the same mistake. What about us? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Friends, the truth is that every single one of our hearts is naturally inclined away from the Lord. We naturally want 
to free ourselves from being under his rule. The only rule that we are content being under is our own. That's the natural state of your heart and my heart. So it's not an unreasonable question to ask yourself, well, what price would you pay to get God off your back? What price would you pay to be able to to forget his claims and ignore his demands on your life and to be free? What is that worth to you? Is that a deal that you would take if you could? I hope you can see that it would be a fool's trade to make that deal. Do you see that? Because people assume that if they choose to not follow Jesus, that they will be free, free to be whoever they want, free to do whatever they want, free to follow whoever they want. But that's not the choice before us, is it? If you choose to silence the good shepherd, what will happen is you will end up in the hands of bad shepherds who only bring ruin. Bob Dylan famously sang, you're going to have to serve somebody. And well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. That's the choice before us. So which shepherd are you going to choose? In John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. I guess the question for us today is, as your shepherd whistles for you, as he calls out for you, will you listen? Jesus is that leader that our hearts have been longing for. And so as he warns you of the danger of being left to your own devices, left without a shepherd, will you listen to him? As he calls you to leave your sin, leave your idols, leave your oppressors, will you turn and follow him? Let me pray for us. Gracious Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to earth to seek and save the lost. We know ourselves to be lost people, people who have willfully wandered away from you, the God of love. We're sorry, Lord, for our foolishness. We're sorry that our hearts continue to feel the pull of this world. Please rescue us from this foolishness, this spiritual suicide. Please draw us to yourself. We want to be gathered into you and to experience that blessing, that restoration, that rest that you promise your flock. So please help us to answer your call. Amen.